folks. Uh, it's really good to be here with you uh, tonight. And good to be here in Murphy for the first time, which is awesome. It's, a, I think, a good space for us, and really glad uh, that we can be together. Um, so, normally, the way that REF works is we kind of take a book of the Bible and we march through it. That saves you from my hobby horses and kind of the little piccolos that I have, but it also gives you a much... Why I say piccolo in context? Uh, but... It also uh, lets God's Word speak more for itself than actually me. But this semester we're doing something a little bit differently. Every four years we do a series on dating uh, and relationships, marriage, friendship, the whole deal. So in this, it's not only my intention to talk about dating, but it's because this isn't just tips for like Christian romance. However, just by nature of being a person, I just want to say that relationships are inevitable. Like, we're all in some sort of regular, ongoing human interaction. We have families, we have friends, we have coworkers. You're at least sitting next to someone if you're in this room. So tonight, we're looking at one of the most important passages of the Bible. Um, this passage in Genesis 3 sets the tone for the rest of the topics in the Bible, and it's important for our purposes because it helps us to diagnose what's wrong with our relationships. You see, what happens in Genesis 3 is what theologians have called the fall. When mankind fell from their relationship with God. And what I want us to do is for the next two weeks doing a kind of CSI autopsy of what this relational failure looks like. In total, I'm going to look at six effects of the fall. I know they touch on all of our lives, but for tonight I just want to touch on the first three effects. Next week we'll be back here and we'll deal with the last three. But this week I want to look at self-centeredness. I want to look at insecurity. And I want to look at avoidance. Self-centeredness, insecurity, and avoidance. So let me read Genesis 3, 1 through 13. I'll get cranking here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, Father, these are uh, this is a challenging passage, and this is a challenging story for so many of us. Um, what does it mean? Where is it from? But Lord, on top of that, God, how do we hide? And some of us are sitting here wondering, where are you? And some of us are sitting here feeling you call out to us and say, I want to know you. Where are you now? Why are you hiding? Lord, would you help us to not hide tonight? Would you help us to be present with you? And Lord, would you break into our hearts 
to our minds and to our souls that we would know you and have fellowship with the one true and living God. In your son's name I pray, amen. All right, so I, I heard a story recently uh, about a young woman who fell in love with a man. And they kind of they started talking and kind of chatting, went to a real like, deep conversation, and they were texting, they were going on dates. And one thing goes to another, and they are just totally head over heels for each other. And the woman is in love with the man, and the man is in love with her. And part of what is so compelling about this guy is that his story is just so hard, and she wants to take care of him and really just be there for him. Because part of his story he's telling her is that every woman that he's ever been with, that he's ever dated, she, they've cheated on him. And she just feels so heartbroken for him. That she wants him to have a really good relationship. And she wants to be the person that he would have that relationship with. And so, kind of one thing leads to another. They fall in love. They get married. They go on the honeymoon. They come back. And as they get back from the honeymoon, she starts to realize something. There's something not right with this guy. There's something kind of messed up about him. And the thing is is that he always thinks that she's cheating on him. That whenever they go out to places, he accuses her of cheating on him, that he's constantly checking her phone. She's totally loyal, totally faithful, but they'll go to like dinner parties with friends and he'll accuse her to her face there. Or they'll go and do like Christmas with the in-laws and he'll accuse her there. And no matter what she does or what she says to him, he cannot be talked out of it. Like he totally believes it and it ruins their relationship. And biblically, in so many ways, y'all, that is us and God. That God is always faithful. He is always loyal. He sees us and He gives us everything that we need. And we are always convinced that He's unfaithful. And we are always wrestling with God. Where are you? What are you doing? Are you really there for me? You see, most of the Christian life is not stopping doing bad things and learning how to do good things. Most of the Christian life is unlearning that old way of thinking that God is not going to be there for you, that God doesn't care for you, that God is somehow cheating on you. And y'all, this is important. And this story is important because it's not some kind of vague mythological description about these petty people who broke a petty God's rules and he threw them out of a garden somewhere. Y'all, this is not about getting kicked out of the arboretum. This is a relationship. <laughs> this is a relationship that's broken. Do you hear the longing and the disappointment that God has for His people? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you? This is not a broken, arbitrary rule. This is a relational failure. See, Adam and Eve rejected God's authority and the relational intimacy that came with that and with one another. They said, you're not giving me what I want. I'd rather have it my way. And barring some from a counselor named Larry Crabb, from this point on, the rest of the story of the Bible shows that there's one primary enemy to all human interaction, and that's self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. And you can say, well, duh. Like, I mean, you ought to see my family. You ought to see my friends. You ought to see the person I'm dating. Like, self-centeredness is a problem here. But we've got to be really careful before you point a finger out there. Because sin is the most subtle enemy that you'll ever face. And when you point out there, you might be missing the person that it most applies to. Again, sin is not doing bad things and then, and then avoiding doing good things. But sin starts with a relational failure between God and people and then leads to another failure between people and people 
between people and ourselves, and between people and the world. You see, it's a relational failure that makes us blind to God and who He is. It makes us do things that aren't just bad, but are dumb. And which makes us unable to respond to God and each other in the way that we're meant to. And therefore, our actions are tied to sin, but sin is not primarily about our actions. Sin is first and foremost about your heart. You see, our actions, especially our actions in relationships, the person you're dating, with the person you want to date, but you're not dating, those are simply the arena in which our heart's reality is shown to the outside world. Jesus once was talking to a group of very religious people, and he said this, he said that what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, etc., etc. You know, it's self-centeredness, and it starts in the heart. In this job, I end up talking uh, with a lot of you about relationships, or the lack thereof, and... I love, I, like, I love it. I love talking with you all about relationships. It's an honor for me to, to hear about the thing that you sometimes care the most about and that at least presses on you a ton. Uh, but here are some things that I and other campus ministers hear from you all a lot. And none of, these, none of these are transcripts from anything that anyone here has said. They're just sort of, the, sort of the things that campus ministers hear a lot. It's this. I am so frustrated with him. I've got to start thinking about me. Until I do, I just can't be happy. She's changed. If she was just like we were when we first started dating, we might be able to work this out. But right now, I feel stifled. I need the freedom to be able to do what I want to do. I don't know what happened. The spark just isn't there. I don't have the feelings I used to have. I guess I just don't love him anymore. I call her... And I call her because I'm trying to show her that she broke up with someone that loves her more than anyone else ever could. Y'all, I'm not trying to be insulting here. Kind of the, the prospect of ending relationships is, can be really terrifying. But I and others like me, campus ministers, find ourselves in these circumstances as a minister where we're wanting to relieve the pain that's behind a lot of those statements. But we can't do that. So long as you are first and foremost committed to your happiness and yourself above all things. Like, I want to, but I can't. You see, the common theme in all those things, even when they're justified at times, but that I can't help but see, is this overriding concern in that person's statement that I'm in this relationship for me. The moment that it ceases to meet my needs, I'm done. Other things matter, but nothing matters than my personal happiness and my satisfaction. And y'all, my problem as your pastor is that I can't help you unless that's dealt with. Like, at the very start, like, that's what we've got to deal with. You see, at the moment of the fall, at the moment of Adam and Eve breaking the relationship with God, we began to have this ultimate ruin of relationships. Because the moment it happens, people start to live in reference only to themselves. Not in reference or dependency upon God or even other people, but to them. And to what they're feeling, they're thinking in that moment. That I live in reference to my desires, my wants, to me. And I think we can be shocked at the amount of divorce that occurs in this country, but like, that's, the way, that's our default. And this passage leaves behind it a wake of effects from the fall. And in fact, the entire rest of the story of the Bible is God cleaning up the mess of Genesis chapter 3. 
So that's our self-centeredness. Let's look at our insecure idols. Look at how this passage starts. Look at the dialogue between Eve and the serpent. How does it go? Essentially, it's the serpent saying, God can't give you what you need. You know what you need. More than God and being in relationship with Him, you need a piece of fruit. And it's not bad fruit. It's pleasing the eye. It's good for food. It's going to make you wise. It's not just any fruit. It's special fruit. Two things here. One, let's not play the old game of blaming Eve for the fall. Adam is just as culpable. We'll get more to him later. Two, I think to modern people, the whole fruit thing can sound ridiculous until we think about the ways that we trade real relationship and real intimacy for things that are legitimately good but not good enough. See, some of y'all have never been on a date because to get out there and actually mix it up with people and be in real relationship with people would mean that you'd have to back off of controlling your schedule or working a job and an internship and taking 18 hours of classwork. And to date someone or even have a really good friend would mean that you just have to back off the scheduling resume game. Others of you have never not been in a relationship or never stopped imagining what it would be like to be in a relationship. You're constantly putting yourself out there, avoiding schoolwork and responsibility, and somehow you're at Carolina, but you made it. Kudos. <laughs> because you're certain that these things, the schedules, the internships, are not going to give you what you must long for. Like, well, who cares about schoolwork? I'm here to meet people. I'm here because I'm a people person. What's at the heart of all this? What's at the heart? Looking for something other than God to fix what's ailing us. Some of you are saying relationships take time and they take effort. If I have a lot of them or if I have some of them that are really deep, then I can't do what I want to do. Hear that self-centeredness again? People make requirements of me. I don't need relationships as much as I need to land the big internship, to get a job out here, to make my parents proud. Be careful there. Because you may not find out today or tomorrow or next semester, but someday... You'll become painfully aware that as you climb the ladder of success, that finding the security that your heart desperately longs for and looking for that on that ladder, you will not find it, but you will only find more ladder. It's all, there's always something more to do. There's always another thing to accomplish. It never ends. Others of you are going to find that when you do get that perfect someone, the security that you wanted from this person... A sense of wholeness, completeness, of inner peace is just impossible for a person to provide. These are insecure idols. And I would wager that these insecure idols are the number one killer of relationships on this campus. Like, period. That the fear of breaking up, and so I will never put myself out there. The fear of embarrassment, the fear of exposure, of being alone, of failing at something that is difficult and there is no manual for but you just have to figure it out and make mistakes along the way, that those fears kill tons of your relationships. For both types of people, what's wrong is not that you don't care about the person or the people, but that you care too much. For those of you driven by the desire to work your way up the ladder, to have a relationship would be to let someone get too close and take control of some kind of your life out of your hands. If I let them get too close, what would they do to me? What would that do with my sense of control? Do you see the power that you've invested in them right there? That this person could wreck my life, so I'm going to keep them out. Do you see how focused on the self that is? And so you don't take the risk. On the other hand, for those of you who jump whole hog into the relationships, you've invested in this burden of making sense of your life. 
that I'm happy when they're happy, I'm destroyed when they're unhappy, or the threat of breaking up hangs over my head. Do you see how much power they're invested with there too, right? So you take too much risk. Do you see the point that for all of us, it's an overinvestment in an idol that is inherently insecure? Let me ask you this question. When you're the most insecure, what do you fear your partner loves more than you? When you're the most insecure, what do you fear they love? And I also mean friendship here, because some of you have as much drama in your circle of friends as any dating relationship. Like, you know that, right? What do you fear your friend, dating or otherwise, cares about more than you when you begin to feel really insecure? And you're walking around and wondering what they're thinking of you, how you came off, you're replaying that last conversation. What are you afraid of there? Look, as we've said before, and we've beat this drum a lot already, our relationships cannot be an end in themselves. They just cannot be an end in themselves. C.S. Lewis, again, is very helpful here. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, He says this. First things have to be kept first. That's a relationship with God. Second things have to be kept second. But if you take second things and make them in the place of the first things, then the second things not only don't do what they're supposed to do, but they get corrupted. If you aim at heaven, then you get heaven and earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, then you get neither. And that includes relationships. That's our insecure idols. So here's avoidance for y'all. Look at verses 6 and 7. She took of its fruit, that's Eve, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam was with Eve the whole time. He was with Eve the entire time. And he says nothing. He does not speak. He's totally silent. He was hiding in his silence. And that word hid is all through this passage. Go back and look at it later. It's everywhere. And the tragedy here is that when they ate, they could no longer be naked together. Which is something we all long for, right? It's to be naked with another person. And have that person love you and accept you in that nakedness. What biblically is nakedness? Nakedness, biblically, is the Bible's word for intimacy. To let someone see you, the whole of you, and not have any pretensions, not even have any clothes. Like, that's what you were made for. And, but because of their sin, what happens? They can no longer be intimate and naked. Instead, they have to craft some kind of something to cover themselves with. Instead of the freedom to live naked together, they have to live in shame with one another. And the tragedy is that they were made to be together. And they're going to be together. They're going to have this relationship. But they can't be together in the way that they were supposed to be. And a lot of us feel that a lot of the time. And so they avoid each other. Y'all, hiding relationally is huge and it's incredibly subtle. Some of you are only 19 and you could probably write a dissertation about it at this point. Many of us have never faced that unsettling realization that so much of what drives this public persona that we have is really an attempt to avoid other people. Extroverts, be honest. How much of your extroversion has been a way for us to use our God-given personality to overwhelm people with how wild we can be, how funny we can be, 
how conversational we can be, while at the same time never letting them see the real person. You make the face, you post the comment, and voila, it opens doors. Introverts, be honest. Can't we take our natural tendency to get recharged in the world of ideas and concepts and introspection and use that to keep people out? That we build up this wall of quiet, of silence, of solitude, of me and my alone time, and we place it right next to the wall of noise that our extroverted friends have put up. But we're both doing the same thing. We're keeping one another out. You see, in many ways, our personalities are the sophisticated attempt to manage my life on my terms. Have you ever taken the time to really sit down and ask yourself the hard question, why do I act the way that I act? Why do I get mad about the things I get mad about? Why do I make the kind of jokes that I make? Why do I hang out with the sort of people that I hang out with? Have you ever asked your friends how it is that you come across? Like, what do you see in me? What do you like about me? What's there? Have you ever asked that? You know, we always think we know ourselves, but we are our own worst judges because we're hiding. We're hiding even from ourselves. And that's just it, isn't it? That the relational brokenness isn't out there at least not all of it, that it's in here too. It's in my heart that I don't want to see, and I definitely don't want you to see what's inside of me. And because of this, we don't understand genuine authenticity or real genuineness with other people. And the big question for us tonight is, how do I let people know they're getting the real me? How do I let people know they're getting the real me? Because that's what I want people to really know, isn't it? Weren't you made to stand in front of another person naked and unashamed? Get the whole real you? All the warts and the flaws and the flab? Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. But guess what? The real me is broken. There's stuff inside of me that I'm embarrassed about. I don't want any of you to see that. So I'm going to overwhelm you with my personality. Or I'm going to retreat back into this little place inside of myself so that you don't see. Be quiet. Regardless, please don't see. You have the choice in college to let people see. You're around your friends more than you'll ever be around your friends. This is a great preparation ground for you to do relationships in such a way that you could do marriage really, really, really well. But to do that, you have to let people see. You have to let people see. So much of the power of sin in our relationships and in our heart is this combination of our insecure idols, desperately longing for people to be near us or pushing people away, and of our avoidance of real relationships because we're afraid of what other people will find. On the one hand, we are absolutely so self-absorbed that someone might find that I'm screwed things up and so I have to perform for them. We're so self-absorbed in that that we have to perform for these people. And on the other hand, because of that, it never occurs to us to reach out to someone who is not as privileged, as smart, as accomplished, or put together as I hope that you think that I am, and so I feel alone. And you know, there's a lot of great things about UNC, but those are some of the flawed things. Those are some of the things we feel a lot. So we have to perform for people, and in that performance, we're so centered on ourselves that we feel so alone. 
man, that's a broken part about this place. And if you want to make this place better, work on that yourself. And go out and do relationships without those things. All right, can I offer one tiny little thought in closing? Tiny little thought. That we were built, you were built, for someone to look inside it all the way, all the way, at all the places that we're afraid of, and still to say, wow, you're amazing. I love you. Broken? Absolutely. But I love you, and I'm not going away. And every random hookup, and every single long, drawn-out relationship that all of your friends tell you is a terrible idea, and every night spent pining away for the dream of a perfect someone, all those things is an echo of that longing. Wow. I see it, and I want it anyway. Not all this stuff out here that you're doing. Not the front. Not the person that you think that you should be. Not the swoop of hair, not the sundress. I want you. I want the real you. And if that's you tonight, Christianity says, yes. Yes, that you were made for that. And you were made that the one to do that would not be any single man or woman because that is too much burden to bear for any person. But the one that you were made to do that would be the Lord God Almighty Himself. And that when that happens, you can put down the idols. And you can stop avoiding one another. And you can stop having to live for yourself, but you can actually have real relationships. Real relationships. Isn't that what we're all here for tonight anyway? It's real relationships. And so I'll close with this. I'll close with this. Why is it, why is it in almost all the Gospels, at least in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that they talk about Jesus' clothes being gambled away as he's crucified so that we would know that he's naked? Why do Matthew and Mark record that when he's on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do they tell you that? You know, a lot, not long ago, I heard a story about a young woman who was dating a guy. And they were kind of hipsters, and they were into irony and all that kind of stuff that hipsters love. And as they started dating... Uh, they started singing to each other Phil Collins songs, which if you know any Phil Collins songs, it's like the cheesiest cheese 80s love songs ever. And they start ironically singing those songs to each other, but as they date, the irony starts to slack, and it, like, they're actually singing the Phil Collins songs to each other. It beca- his songs become their songs, like for real. And the relationship is going great until one New Year's night, the guy breaks up with the girl just out of the blue. She has no idea it's coming. She has no speech prepared. She has no like, reasons for why she should back down and they should you know, just take a break and you know, go on. Just wham, out of nowhere, she gets broken up with. And she says that she came to realize as she's crying on her bedroom floor and as she's crying listening to Phil Collins songs or she's crying in the checkout line at the grocery store that when you're broken up with it, like 80% of all the songs are breakup songs. And, you know, eventually to kind of work through some of this stuff, she decides to write her own breakup song. And so she does, and kind of in the way that life works, she somehow has a connection to the master himself, to Phil Collins. And so this connection kind of connects them, and Phil Collins agrees to listen to her song and critique it and talk with her about it. And 
She plays it for him, and they talk. And in the interview which she records, he talks about how he had actually written a lot of his own breakup songs around his divorce and around the, own, the heartbreak and the pain that he felt in that. And there's this moment in this interview where you can kind of hear this connection between the two of them, that they could sing the same song. Have you ever thought about why God writes himself into the history of the world? And when he does, why does he do that? Like he gives himself a hard story. He gives himself a hard, sad song. One that ends with the cross. His dad, by all accounts, is a great guy, dies. His friends, who he loves and spends a time with, and they're his brothers, betray him. His nation crucifies him. Why is it that when Jesus writes himself into a story, that he gives himself a hard story? That he sings a hard song? Why are Jesus' last words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is actually a quote from song lyrics in the Psalms. Why is Jesus naked? So that he could sing your song. So that he could not only carry the weight of your sins, but as he's buried in his physical nakedness, the shame and the fear that you feel, so that you could stand up and stop being afraid of what other people are thinking of you. And so that you can know that God gets it. And in that moment, He's not just dying for your sins, but for your identity and for your felt experience of your heart. And when He does that, it sets you free. And not only that, but it invites you to move in the lives of other broken people and say, look at me. This is me. I'm naked. I'm broken. And God loves me anyway. And He sang a song over me. And come sing with me too. That you can do that with other people. That he's the one that made me that kind of hope. That's what you long for. And what you're going to find in the next few weeks is that without the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no way through the relational disaster that all of us feel and all of us experience on some level. But that in him and through him is the road to healing and to hope and real relationships. And as always, that's my invitation to you, my invitation for the next few weeks. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us your son, that he dies and sings over us. And it's not some happy, tranquil song that's trying to pep us up and make us feel better. But Lord, that it's a real song of heartbreak and mourning. Because he was cut off for our sake. And not only that, but he gets it when we feel cut off from one another and from each other. And he, he invites us into a place where we don't have to perform, where we don't have to be alone. But God, He invites us into a relationship with You, where we can drop the barriers, where we can drop the pretenses, and we can just be ourselves, naked and unashamed. And Lord, because of that, we can be, Lord, naked and ashamed with each other. Lord, would You bring that sort of healing into our lives? It's what we most long for and it's what we're most afraid of. God, would you do that for us? We believe that you will because you're that good. Because you've died for us. Work that reality and the hope of that reality in our lives tonight and forevermore. In your son's name we pray. Amen.